And I want to talk to you about is Israel's premier prophet, and my text is 2 Kings chapter 6, which I believe is a phenomenally prophetic word for this community in this hour. And it says that the sons of the prophet said to Elisha, see now the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go over to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let us make a place where we may dwell. So we answered, go. Then one said, please consent to go with your servants. And he said, I will go. So he went with them. Elijah was the premier prophet of Israel, no doubts about that. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus popped the question in Caesarea Philippi to his disciples, he says, who did men say that I am? I want you to pay close attention to the answers that the disciples gave. The first said John the Baptist, the second said Elijah, and the third Jeremiah. In other words, these three prophets were the people most associated with our Lord's ministry. It's interesting that the first two names, John and Elijah, both shared the same mantle. John the Baptist, of course, came not just in the mantle of Elijah, but also in the spirit of Elijah. And the whole point is, the prophet in the Old Testament that most describes our Lord Jesus Christ was the prophet Elijah. He was hands down the principal prophet of the Old Covenant. There was something so great about Elijah that when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, the two prophets that stood before him was Moses and Elijah. And Elijah stood shoulder to shoulder with the man who was considered the greatest man of the Old Covenant, Moses. Moses was the man that led the children of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. He was the man that delivered Israel from Pharaoh. He was the man that gave us the law, wrote the first five books of the Bible called the Torah. And Moses performed all those great miracles and above all, he was the man that spoke to God face to face as a man would speak to his friend. But what did Elijah do? He didn't write a book. He wasn't a leader of a nation. He, there was not even a book in the Bible called the book of Elijah. He was a pretty obscure prophet. He had battled with discouragement, almost wanted to quit at one point. And yet there was something so great about this man that people saw very strong similarities between him and Jesus. And that's really a, the highest compliment that a prophet can ever have. So what was it so remarkable about Elijah that caused Jesus to say, of all men born of women, none is greater than John, who came in the spirit of Elijah? When the Lord was choosing his companions for eternity, what kind of qualities does he look for? Is it any wonder that God was, when God was preparing a vessel to be a foreigner for his son, the mantle of Elijah was chosen, not Daniel's mantle, not Jeremiah's mantle, not Solomon's mantle, not Isaiah's mantle, Elijah's mantle was the chosen mantle. So how did Elijah come to such a stature? We don't know what went on in this training. God is very discreet about those things. But he was in the wilderness, and when he appeared before Ahab in 1 Kings 17, he was a fully formed prophet with a fully formed utterance. Said to the king, three and a half years, there will be no rain at my word. The whole episode on Mount Carmel was the highlight of Elijah's Ministry, the fire fell, the people worshipped, the false prophets were slain, the drought was broken, all in a day's work for an amazing prophet. Jezebel sends a message the next day to say that he was a dead man. Elijah flees and for 40 days he runs to a place called Horeb where 500 years before the Lord appeared to another prophet called Moses in all his multifaceted glory. The Lord instructs Elijah to anoint three men that would complete what he started. Hazel, the king of Syria, Jehu, the king of Israel, and Elisha, the son of Nimshi, the prophet in his stead. Now, Elijah 
was the leader of a company of people called the Sons of the Prophets. And it had branches in Gilgal, Bethel, and Jericho. And like every good leader, he was thinking about succession. And everyone assumed that he would find somebody from within this company of prophets to be his successor. When God speaks to him on Mount Horeb and said, I want you to go over to the place called Abel Mehola. There's a guy there. And his name is Elisha. He's the chosen one. He's the one that will succeed you and go and anoint him as prophet in your stead. I think that must have been a great surprise to Elijah. But he obeys the Lord and he goes to Abel Mehola, finds this young man, touches him with his garment, and Elisha is ruined for the rest of his life. And for the next seven years or so, Elijah served as an apprentice to his master, Elijah. For this reason, the Bible commentators say that there was this underlying tension between Elisha and the sons of the prophets because he was an outsider. He was not one of the boys. So there was a degree of resentment and jealousy towards Elisha. I mean, how could God choose someone not from our own team? How could God choose someone who is not from our own church? And this resentment played out several times in Scripture. When Elijah was about to be taken into heaven, Elisha was told that by one of the sons of the prophets, do you not know that your master is going to be taken away? His response, hold thy peace. In other words, keep quiet. The time of parting came, Elijah tries to persuade Elisha from following him. Elijah says, no, he would not leave his master out of his sight. Finally, Elijah says to Elisha, what do you want from me? He says, whatever you got, I want double. Elisha says, you've asked for a hard thing, but if you see me get taken, he says, it will be yours. Elisha is taken into heaven. Elisha's eyes are open. He sees the nine yards, whole nine yards, the chariots of fire. The mantle falls on him. The sons of the prophet sees the spirit of Elijah on, on, on Elisha. He sees the mantle. They bow down to him. I want to come to the story of the axe head because that is the last in the series of episodes which describe the interaction between Elisha and the company of the prophets. And like all the stories before it, the story is intended to capture the tension and the ideological differences between Elisha and the sons of the prophets. The sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now the place where we are in is too small. Please let us go over to the Jordan. Let every man take a beam from there and let us make a place where we may dwell. And the prophet said, Go. The ministry was exploding, right? There was obviously outgrown its current facility. They needed more space. And I talked about this in the legacy series. It's never good for a ministry when there's chronic overcrowding. But instead of expanding their current facility in Gilgal, they wanted to go over to the Jordan. And there is a reason for that, which I'll come to in the next few moments. Elisha's response reveals he's not happy with the plan. The word go or do so in the Hebrew actually means go, but I ain't going with you. Unfortunately, the English translation does not capture this clearly. So there was a reluctance in Elisha in going down to the Jordan. One of them said, please consent to come with your servants. And he said, I will. The person who said that to Elisha is referred in the Bible as the Akhad, and the word means not a one, but the one, right? He's important because I'm going to come to him at the end of this uh, meeting, right? Uh, this is the same man who is going to lose his axe head, all right? This is, it's going to be in the narrative. It's really fascinating, the story. So here is Elisha with the sons of the prophet. He's reluctant to be there, but he's there. 
and then they arrive, they are felling, while they're felling a log, this axe head goes into the river and it's, it becomes irretrievable. The word that's used to, again to denote the man cutting the log is the uh, Ha-Ekad, it's the same guy. The same guy who says to Elisha, please come with us, is the same guy who loses his axe head. And the guy who loses his exit says, please, I can't afford to pay it back. The Jewish commentator says this Eckhart believes that the accident happened because Elisha did not approve of the plan in the first place. In a way, he was pleading with Elisha and said, it's not fair that I should be punished because you don't approve of the plan. But Elisha, of course, is very magnanimous. He performs a miracle, returns the man his exit. Just, uh, just keep the guy in mind because... He's an important guy, right? Now let's talk about moving over to the Jordan for a few moments. In the previous story, of course, Syrian, the Naaman general, uh, Naaman the general got healed of leprosy by immersing himself seven times in the Jordan. And the Jordan River was split open when Elisha took his mantle and said, where is the God of Elijah? And the, the river parted. All I'm saying is that to the Jew, the Jordan River was a symbol and focal point of spirituality. But nobody lived along the banks of the Jordan. And the reason for that is because during the rainy seasons, it always overflows the banks, right? So cities like Gilgal were built away from the river. Gilgal is an interesting city. It's the lowest point on planet Earth. Spiritually, it speaks of humility. And it was here that Israel was circumcised under Joshua. On the other hand, the, the Jordan was the center of spirituality. And it, in a way, it was disconnected with the everyday life of regular people. And this, there was a reason why the sons of the prophet wanted to go over to the Jordan. They wanted to live a more ascetic life, away from the hustle and the bustle of the daily grind, away from the sin and the dirt of humanity. And the Jordan was the perfect place for a monastic lifestyle where they could focus on the disciplines of the spiritual life. Now remember the Jordan is the place connected with all these powerful experiences and what the sons of the prophets wanted were all these encounters with the living God. They want God to manifest His glory and the tension that underscored. And that was the ideological difference between Elisha and the sons of the prophet. Elisha wanted to be where the people were in Gilgal. He didn't want to go over to the Jordan. Because in the Jordan, they were out of touch with the human pain and human dilemma. And the tension that underscored this relationship between Elisha and the company of the prophet stems from the question of the role of the prophet in relationship to one's social context. Does the prophet belong to the commoners in Gilgal or is, or is he called to seclusion in solitary contemplation on the banks of the Jordan? That's the issue. I find it fascinating, man. Fast forward. John the Baptist. John the Baptist is raised in the wilderness by the Essenes, a monastic community that focused on the inner life. Man, he, he was as holy as you can get. When he was manifested to Israel, he was a shining lamb. But the Essen people were very disconnected from public life. All of Israel were, were, were drawn to John until Jesus came along. But Jesus was unlike any other rabbi in Israel. He didn't isolate himself from the dirt, the shame, the pain, and the guilt of the commoner. And the religious leaders in Israel were scandalized when they saw him fraternize with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. And they could not understand how a holy man could mix with such unholy people because they failed to understand one major difference between him and the rest of the rabbis. You see in the Old Testament, if I'm a clean man and if I touch someone unclean, I will be unclean. 
But in the new covenant, when a clean man touched somebody who's unclean, the unclean becomes clean. When Jesus touched the leper, he said, be clean. Jesus did not become unclean. The leper became clean. That's the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. And we cannot stay isolated in our secure, sanitized environments and say to everyone, I'm holy. I cannot fellowship with you. We're in the world, Jesus said, but we're not of this world. And the Lord has given notice to the devil and that his children will choose him above everything and anything else that this world has to offer. And he's going to prove it. That his people will love him above everything else. I know what I'm talking about because I, was, I came out from a movement that was inward-looking, self-absorbed, but a very holy people who would have nothing to do with the dirt of the world. And they basically said to me, if I fellowship with people they didn't approve, then hit the road, Jack. And that's what I did. I hit the road. Was it painful? What do you think? Of course it was. But I refuse, anyone, every, I refuse to allow anyone to dictate who or who I cannot fellowship with. That is not new covenant. That is not a, that's a failure to understand why Jesus came. That's the difference between John and Jesus. When John was in prison, he was so confused. He sent two of his disciples to, Jesus, to ask Jesus, are you really the one? Or should we look for someone else? He could not understand how Jesus could sit down with the prostitutes. How he could fraternize with the sinners and tax collectors. But I stand here today and say, ladies and gentlemen, the only yardstick of measurement in the Bible is Jesus. Amen. Not Elijah, not John, not Jeremiah, as wonderful as they are, Jesus is the gold standard. Here's another thing. Every miracle that Elisha performed is replicated in the New Testament. He cleansed the leper, he raised the dead, he multiplied the bread, healed the waters, he made what was poisonous to be edible. Every miracle he performed is recorded in the New Testament except one miracle, and that is the axe head floating up. And I, it's always confused me. So what does the axe represent? It, of course, it represents judgment, uh, John the Baptist says, who warned you of the, 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 to flee from the wrath to come? The axe is now laid at the root of the tree, right? And, and so, uh, in other words, uh, you know, I wish I could explain this to you more, but I'll just very briefly say in Deuteronomy chapter 19, an exit, the exit is framed in the context of mor moral culpability, right? A man is chopping the tree, the exit flies off the handle, hits another man, kills the man. That man is not guilty of murder because there was no intent to murder, but he is guilty of involuntary manslaughter. And the avenger of the blood cannot take his life because there was no malice. The exit is lost, then located, then restored, which means the offender is exculpated from moral liability. In other words, he's not guilty anymore. And for Jesus to use that as, a, sorry, for Elisha, when he raised that, that exit from the water, what he was saying, and what the picture it was painting was that he was God, when Jesus came, he was going to remove judgment, the exit from the word. And instead of showing judgment, he would show grace. Hallelujah. Sorry, that always confused me in the Bible. Sorry to belabor the point. I need to make the announcement. Is uh, turning the water into wine. And the Jewish commentator said that at that precise moment, everything was hinged on one thing. Would Jesus show judgment or was he going to show mercy? And the father left that decision to him. The mother comes and says, these guys have a problem. They ran out of wine. He says, what have they got to do with you, woman? Was on, wasn't being rude. And at that moment, he knew he had to make a decision. And he chose 
grace over judgment and then turn the water into wine as a, as a sign that Jesus did not come into this world to judge us, but to show grace to us. Hallelujah. I've used this story in 2 Kings chapter 6 as a context to frame what I'm going to say. There's no easy way to say what I'm going to say. Over the past two years, we've been searching for a building for Cornerstone. As you know, we have been experiencing this chronic shortage in our church. And in the last two years, we've seen scores of buildings, mostly B1 industrial buildings that had lots of restrictions, car park, lack of car park, car parks and things like that. And then we stumbled upon this building, Sultan Plaza, and this nightclub. It checked all the boxes. It was uh, in the city. It was accessible to three MRT stations. It was close to all the amenities. It, was, um, it, had, it had 500 car park lots and um, it had a column-free span. So it checked all the boxes. And I was very enthusiastic about it because I thought, man, this is the dream place for us. And uh, in the last two months since we signed the option to purchase, I've been through some of the most intense, difficult periods in my 31 years of full-time ministry. I, know, I now know, understand what the Lord says, meant when he said to Paul, it's hard to kick against the goats. I spent the last month second-guessing what the will of God is, and, for, and all the while, there was this absence of peace in my heart. I guess I broke the cardinal rule of guidance, and that is I didn't allow for time to test the word of the Lord. When we bought this place, Odeon Katong, in 1998, it took us 18 months before we finally agreed and signed the option to purchase. The vision was, was died, died, resurrected, died, resurrected, died, resurrected. And finally, the breakthrough came. They said, would you like to buy this place? We offered a price. They agreed. And that was an amazing breakthrough. I had a word from God. I, had, I knew this was part of our destiny. It was the same with the Bible College of Wales. I walked in. I knew this. The Lord, I saw the Lord says, this is the place I want. And I had a marvelous spiritual experience, an encounter with God that reinforced the fact that this was the place that God had chosen. But I'll tell you this, honestly, for Sultan Plaza, I checked all the boxes. And uh, the Lord said, you checked all the boxes, but you didn't check with me. I guess in my eagerness to secure a second building for Cornerstone, I might have overlooked some crucial things for which I bear full responsibility. Not the board, I bear full responsibility. I didn't hear him say no, but I did not hear him say yes either. There's been a few central scriptures that I want to run through very quickly that I think will help articulate what I want to say. First is Genesis chapter 26. Isaac redicts the wealth of his father, Abraham. There's a fight over the well. The inhabitants of Gera, the Philistines, fought with him. He didn't want to quarrel. He walked away from the fight. Although the well was his, it was his right. Belonged to his father. And he walked away from the well and God gave him and rewarded the man with two great wells, Rehoboth, spaciousness, and Bathsheba. The second scripture that helped to form certain things in my life is Exodus chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses in this chapter, He says, Moses, it's time, to take the, it's time to go towards the promised land. He says, my angel will come with you. He's going to fight for you. He's going to make the way for you. But he says, I'm not going to be there with you. 
And Moses says, God, if you don't come, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. Count me out. I'm, not, I'm out of this, man. If you're not coming, I'm out of this. To Moses, the presence of God was paramount. Nothing else mattered. And I want to stand here today and say to you, my, the presence of God to me is more important than 10 auditoriums. If he's not going to go with us, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And I, I, want to, I thank God that he sends his angel to fight for us. I thank God he sends his angel to lead us. But I don't want just an angel leading Cornerstone. I want his cloud of glory and a pillar of fire by night. I want his presence to lead us. Paul spoke of the permissive will. He spoke of the perfect will. And I'm sensing that I'm in this permissive will of God. He's permitted me to move on, but it's been turbulent. Two months, I'm telling you nothing but problems. In 31 years of full-time ministry, I've never encountered so many roadblocks in my life. And I've been grappling with negative news almost every other day. And it's been a wearisome thing. And I've been bruised and I've been hurt. And so for the past month, I've been pleading with the Lord, please consent to come with us. And he has been silent. I sense in this whole story with Elisha's reluctance to come, but I think he will. I think he will. But this is not his perfect will for us, and if we're willing to forego this adventure, I know he's going to give us something superior. And I'll come to that in a few moments. The next one is 2 Samuel chapter 7. David is dwelling in a beautiful house of cedar. He's overlooking the balcony. And he sees the tent that he erected for the Ark of the Covenant. He says, something's not right. Calls his prophet Nathan. He says, Nathan, I dwell in a beautiful house. God's house is just a tent. It's not right. I want to build God a house. Nathan says, go for it, man. God's with you. That night, the Lord says to Nathan, he says, go tell my servant David that I love his heart, that he wants to build me a house. But please tell him, he's not the one to do it. He's not the chosen one. His son will build a house for me. I'm grateful for the scores of prophecy that have strengthened my hands, encouraged me to go forward. But I thank God that I have Nathans as well, who have been ability to hear a little, maybe a little more accurately. It was like the Lord saying, I love your heart, but you're not the one who's going to build me this house. Pastor Lip gave me a word this week, and I thought it was an important word in 2 Samuel 21. David was fighting in a battle. He was an older man. And he was tired. And one of the sons of Gi the giants thought he could kill David. And as he was approaching David, one of David's generals, Abishai, came and delivered David and saved his life. Son of the, the sons of the giant thought, this is my opportunity to kill the man that killed my father. And of course, they said to David, you shall not go out anymore in battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. He said, and he said to me, Pastor Young, this is not your battle. I don't feel God's calling you to fight this battle. I feel God's calling you to shine for Jesus in this season of your life. You're the lamp of cornerstone. You need to shine. The next day, one of my other pastors, uh, Elijah, had a dream. He said, Pastor, I don't often dream dreams. But he said, in my dream, I saw a room. It was an armory. There were weapons. There was a spear and you were reaching out to take the spear when a hand tapped your shoulder and a voice from heaven came and said, tell him this is not his fight. I guess the Lord is asking me to sit this one out and have the humility to step aside and let the next generation fight this battle. I guess it's not my call. Finally wrestling with this until I acquiesce to the will of God. 
It's not my call to get a second property in the church for the church. It will come. That's a certain, that's a given. But I'm not the man chosen to do that. And I accept that. In Acts chapter 9, in the next verse in verse 5, it says it's hard to kick against the goats over the past few months. Man, I've been relentless. I had this gnawing sense that this is God's resisting us. I kept on pushing. I kept on ignoring that voice because I, I so wanted this property for the church. I so wanted God to give us a second venue. And I kept on pushing. It sapped all my energy, my strength, and distracted me from my core purpose. And I feel like the Akkad, the guy who lost his ex head because he was determined to push ahead with the building plan. But at the end of the story, it is redemptive. Hallelujah. God was gracious to surface what I had lost. He had lost. Chris Berkland sent me a prophecy. And he says, Pastor Young, the devil is trying to trap you in a fight that you're not called to fight. No. And then one more scripture, and then I'll, I'll make the announcement. Lamentations 3 and verse 7. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. I felt at some times, at some moments in this last two months, I couldn't move forward. I couldn't move backwards. I couldn't move to the left. I couldn't move to the right. I felt that Lord, that, that God put me in a prison. I was, I was chained to a prison. But in the last two months, my learning curve has been steepest in the last 26 years as a pastor of the church. As I was grappling with the inner dealings with God, it's gut-wrenching, to say the least. I poured out my heart to God so many times. Please, Lord, come with us. Please, Lord, I, ple I beseech you. If you're not coming, I don't want to go. Please come with us. Let your glory be with us. Let your presence be with us. And it seems like the laying, in the laying down of the vision, I think Abraham did with, like Abraham did with Isaac, is more difficult than trying to plot ahead with uh, what you, you want. Now, I know I'll be misunderstood. I know I'll be criticized a little. I know I might be reviled for the following, what I believe to be the leadings of the Lord. Be that as it may, I'm willing to bear that. So when the owner of the unit at Sultan Plaza said he was willing to consider a rescission of the uh, OTP, which is option to purchase. I saw that as God's way out for us. It will come not without cost as a matter of compensation. I explained the whole scenario to the board and to the executive team, and they have agreed to pull out from the deal to purchase the unit at Sultan Plaza. On Tuesday, I had the opportunity to speak to the staff, our decision to rescind the contract. And as I was talking, the presence of God was just so heavy and I could feel this weight just lifting up from me. Now I want to apologize to the church. I stand here today and I want to apologize to the church that I made an error in judgment. That I didn't really have a preceding word from God in this matter. I want to apologize that I violated the very principles I thought on guidance. And that was to allow time to test the word. And I was hasty in my decision. This whole episode has left me very scarred but grateful to the Lord that He delivered me out of my pain and, and further loss. And it's been a steep learning curve for me, but it's also made me to reflect on where I went wrong in my guidance. I thought, this is the place. The whole process for me has been a test. And of course, for the church, it's been a test to see whether I was willing to lay down what I believe was a vision from God and to come to this place where I am saying to the Lord, I'm willing to lay this down at the altar. A few days ago, 
I heard distinctly in my heart that I should call Gary Morgan. Gary Morgan is a Welsh prophet, amazing Welsh prophet like Sean Bolts. I called him and I said, Gary, I need to talk to you, man. I feel God saying to me, call you to talk to you. I shared with him the whole story, the predicament. He said, Pastor Young, the moment you called me, the first picture I had was an egg head falling into the ground, into the ocean, into the waters. And he said, and the moment he said that, suddenly something just lit up in me. And he said, Pastor Young, what you have, what have sunk, God is going to resurrect again. Be of good cheer. He talked about being, this whole season being a, a marker in my life, a memorial. He said, this is, marked you for eternity. What started 18 months ago, he said, is now that you were, I guess, a bit brash and a bit uh, ferocious. You've now become a leader of humility and contriteness. It's like a David Solomon thing, right? The Lord said to David, you're not going to build me a house. Your son is going to build me a house. What David started, Solomon finished. Hallelujah. And I'm very willing to stand here and say, I have a great team and they are probably going to finish the race that I believe God called me to start in the first place. I was reading this morning in my devotions, I came to a chapter, I didn't plan it, but I came to 2 Chronicles chapter 35. It's about King Josiah. He was 31 years as a king in his reign, 31 years. And he went out to battle to fight with a Pharaoh, Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. Pharaoh said there was this political war over the, it was, it's called the Battle of Carchemish. If you ever get to read it, it's a fascinating his, historical account. The Lord said to Pharaoh, go and fight with the king of Babylon. Josiah says, I'm going to fight you if you do that. And Pharaoh Nicholas says, what have I got to do with you, king of Judah? This is not your fight. This is not your fight. Back away. Because if you don't, this is something is going to happen. And Josiah refused to listen. And he went into battle against Pharaoh. And he got shot by an archer and died. And the Lord spoke to me this morning at 4.45 in the morning in my devotions. He said, if you do this, if you do this, it will cost you. It will cost you personally. More than you will bargain for. This is my 31st year in full-time ministry and the Lord spoke to my heart so, so clearly that if I pursue this course of action, I will, I will stand to lose more than I would gain. Finally, let me just tell you one more story. Just before I came to church, I felt the Lord say, call Pastor Nicky. Just talk to him, tell him what's, what's happening. So I gave him a call. It's very early, in the, late in the night there. And uh, I, I shared with him some of the scriptures that I'm sharing with you now. And uh, when I finished sharing, he sent me this PowerPoint. I want to just show it to you. This is his sermon tomorrow morning. Genesis 26, 2 Samuel 21, 2 Kings chapter 6, 2 Chronicles chapter 35. All the verses that I've read to you, exactly the same passages. This is his message tomorrow. He says, Pastor Young, I was going to preach this message tomorrow and after that call you to say this fight is not your fight. He has no idea what's happening here in Cornerstone. To say to me, this fight is not your fight. And like Abraham, I had to let go of the vision. I want to stand here today and apologize one final time. You know, I know the Koreans bow, the Japanese bow. I, I don't think I need to be so dramatic. 
My board members said, Pastor Young, if you want to, we'll stand with you on the stage as an, as an act of solidarity, solidarity to say to the church, we, we made a mistake in this. I think again, if we push this through, we will get it. We get, we'll get the change of use eventually. But I feel like the Lord is not going to be very pleased. And His presence to me is most important. I'd rather forsake this and forego this opportunity and wait for Him to give us something else. I want to make an announcement about those who have contributed to the building fund. If you have made a donation to the building fund because of this project, I want to encourage you to be magnanimous towards us and leave the money there in the building fund for the next property. But if you want your money back, then please contact the church. We will be very happy to refund you everything that you've given. That's only right. I stand here and I want to be transparent with you in the whole process because it's been very difficult for me in the last two months. It's been very agonizing. I've been bruised in my spirit because you're pushing forward in one direction. and You feel the, the resistance of God. And, I, and He loves me enough to say to me, I've got something better for you if you wait. And I want to just um, take this to a closure today and ask you as the church to forgive us. We, again, we made an error in judgment. Could have been sharper. I could have taken more time to hear and listen. I think I was premature, just over-enthusiastic, I guess. And learn all these lessons, sometimes the hard way. I feel like I should ask Pastor Lip to come up and, and pray for this as well. And he's been along with me in the journey. When, he, when we first started, he was not the most enthusiastic. You know? He said to me, Pastor Young, I, I'm not sure if this is the place for us. But if you say, let's go for it, I'm 100% behind you. And I thank you for great pastors. Great pastors who stand shoulder to shoulder with me all these years, in spite of the mistakes I've made. Please. I'm asking us to stand because we are one, amen. And you know, we are really a family and as we think about properties, we think about these things, we're really thinking about our people and you know, we are definitely not after, you know, some big building for any ideas of grandiose, but we're always looking for a place for our people, you know. We're looking at, about winning the laws, about expanding God's kingdom, opening doors and that's always been our heart, you know. And, um, you know, and so we just come with great humility as a leadership not only just Pastor Young, but every one of us, you know. Um, and we ask you to just stand with us at this time. I think, you know, as a family, these are very, very defining moments for us because it's wonderful for us to band together in times of victory. But in times, you know, of uh, chastisement, in times where there is apparent failure, I think this is what really forms a family. Amen. I remember many years ago in the late 1990s and um, one of the most defining uh, services we had uh, was in the early years when we moved into this place and I remember Pastor Young standing up and towards the end of the service, he prayed a very, very sincere prayer and he said to the Lord, he said, God, we give you back the church. And I remember he was uh, very emotional about it and I know that he meant it with all his heart. And, and, and for me, there was such a defining moment. I remember clearly after that, you know, things in our, our area of finances began to change 
the presence of God intensified in an incredible manner. And all of a sudden, we began to have a sense of direction and vision that wasn't something that we were picking up from conferences or from different people and things like that. And, you know, it is those moments, it is those defining moments. It's not about some great strategy we invented. It's not about some great event that we organized, you know. But it is these altars that are built. And that's why in the Bible, you know, what is recorded for us is the altars that you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob built. And I think that today, tonight, this evening, we want to build an altar together as a family, as a people that God has put us together. And I want to ask us to join together as we pray over this. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we just come to you. We humble ourselves, O oh God. We thank you that you are merciful. We thank you that you are good. And Father, we thank you, O oh God, that you have recorded in the annals of heaven, O oh Lord, that when you look upon a man, Lord, then you're not looking upon the outward of the person. But Lord, that you establish a statute, Lord, when you chose David, Lord, that you would look upon what is the inside of a man, what is the heart that is in us, O oh God. And Father, we know that at this very moment, you're not just looking at Pastor Young's heart, but you're looking at all our hearts, O oh God. Father, that as we go through this, we sense the pain that Pastor Young is going through and enduring. Father, it's not just his pain, it's our pain, Lord. We stand not here to point fingers, but we stand here together as one people, one body, that when one part is in pain, every one of us are in pain. And so we come as one people, Lord. We ask you to forgive all of us, Lord, for, these, for this mistake that we've made, Lord. Father, we don't want to sugarcoat it in any manner. And because we're not trying to prop anyone up, we're just trying to be honest and real with you, O oh God. And we just ask you, O oh God, Lord, that as we uh, put aside contentions as we walk past these wells, Lord, that are in, that, that, that where it is quarrelsome, where there are problems. Father, we ask you, Lord, that you'll bring us to a true Rehoboth, Lord. Father, I thank you that for the last 18 months, you've been speaking in my spirit, this one name, Rehoboth, Lord. And it's been coming over and over again, Lord. And I know that there is a Rehoboth that is waiting for us, O oh God. And Father, we pray, O oh God, Lord, that though we've made this mistake, we pray, O oh God, that your presence will go with us, Lord. We pray and ask you, Lord, to always be with us because if you will not go, we will not go, Lord. Father, that Israel thousands of years ago rejected your voice and they said to Moses, Moses, you go and you tell us what God says. But that was never your intention. Your intention, Lord, was for all of Israel to hear your voice, Lord, to know you. And that's our response. That's why we don't put this on Pastor Young. It says, Pastor Young, you go listen to God's voice and tell us what we're supposed to do, Lord. But Lord, as a people, Lord, we come to you and say, Lord, would you just speak to us, Lord? Because we want to go as one people. Father, we pray for Pastor. We pray, oh God, that in this moment, as a memorial is erected, Lord, in his life, Lord, in heaven, oh God, in the history of this church, in our journey, O oh God, that it will be a memorial that is erected for all of us, O oh God. Father, bring us higher, bring us deeper. Father, we pray for Pastor Young, Lord, that this will be the season, Lord, where he would shine for you more than anything, any other times of his life, Lord. This will be a season, Lord, where his wisdom, the wisdom that you have given unto him, Lord, will be declared and made known, Lord. This will be a season, Lord, where his sons and his daughters will come from the north, the south, the east, the west, oh God. This will be a season, oh God, in which your light will so shine through him, oh God. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this journey. We commit this decision into your hands, Lord. 
Father, we pray, oh God, Lord, that you would bless all the people that might have persecuted us, Lord. And Lord, we pray, oh God, Lord, that the blessings upon them, Lord, is not material. Your blessings is that their eyes may be opened and they may come to the knowledge of salvation, oh God. And Father, we come to you again. We humble ourselves, oh God. We ask you to continually lead us, continually guide us, Lord, for we are totally dependent upon you. We love you, oh God. And Father, again, we pray for Pastor Young that you strengthen him from out of Zion, O God. Father, that you would speak to him. We thank you for the humility. We thank you for the transparency and the honesty, O God. And Father, in the same measure that his heart has been cut, Father, Lord, let our hearts also be cut, Lord, that it will not be him alone bearing this process, but all of us, Lord, bearing this process. We love you, Lord. Jesus, again, as a congregation, we pledge our loyalty to you, O God. Father, we pray we will never be caught up with a building. We will never be caught up with numbers. We will be never be caught up with those outward things, O oh God. But we would always, as a people, be caught up with You, O oh Lord, to love You, to obey You, to do what You want us to do, O oh God. And again, as a church, we just pledge our hearts to You totally, Lord. Totally, God. We love You. We bless You. We pray and ask this all in Jesus' name. And everybody say, Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Pastor Lev. You know, in the last two months, I, I had all this blurriness, couldn't see very clearly. But the moment I decided, or we decided to let this vision die, all of a sudden, there's so much clarity and um, light. And I guess there's nothing better than to do the will of God. So, Father, we just come before you. Thank you so much for a wonderful and amazing leadership, Lord, that have stood with me all these years, Lord. 31 years, five years in the Anglican Church. 26 years in Cornerstone that stood with me, Lord, in times of difficulty, trials. And here we are, Lord, at another threshold of our journey, Lord, and a memorial that has been erected, I believe, Lord, to... I, I believe all of heaven is watching, Lord. Heaven is watching this right now. And I, I, I just... We just humble ourselves before you, Lord. Keep us small in our own eyes. Lord, we again ask for your forgiveness, Lord, for for being presumptuous, Lord, being too eager, Lord, maybe too hasty. And I ask, Lord, for you to cleanse us with the blood of the Lamb. Cleanse us, Lord. And Lord, let us emerge out of, let the axe head rise to the surface again, Lord. The vision that once dropped fell into the water. Let it rise up again because you did not come to judge, Lord. You're not here judging us, Lord. You're here smiling over us, Lord. You're here because you want to show grace, Lord. And so I bless this congregation in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Let's give God a big praise. Amen. You've just listened to a production of Cornerstone Community Church. Please note that all unauthorized reproduction, distribution, or sale of the recording is prohibited. For permission to reproduce or distribute the sermon, please write into mail at cscc.org.sg. We hope that you have been blessed.